Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. I have some of the verses on the insert, but you will need your Bible open to Isaiah 48. We'll look at all the verses. And I must say you are a much more alert-looking group compared to the 830 service. You don't look more holy than them, but you look more alert. They were up... They were, they were New Year's Eve worn in many cases, um, but it was, what a great day to have worship on the first, the first day of the year we get to come and worship God, start the year out. What better way than to come into the house of God with God's people and, and open his word, receive his sacrament. It's a great providence, I think, to have it even if we are a bit tired. Uh, I will try not to make that worse here in the next 35 minutes, but uh, you do your part, and I'll do mine. So listen closely, and the insert um, gives you an outline, but also some of the verses. Um, one of the best expenditures that I have made in the last couple years is uh, NHL Live. It cost me 100 bucks, but I, a little more, just a little, but 100 bucks, and I get all NHL games, 82 per team per year, but I don't have time to watch all those games. When I do, I enjoy them. But I always, always, when my favorite team plays, I go the next day or that night and I look at the six-minute review of the game and the highlights. And you can get a picture, a feel for the game, not just the goals and a couple fights, but, uh, you know, hockey. But at any rate, uh, six minutes gives you some of the key plays. And you just get a flavor for how your team played, what it looked like, and so forth. That is, in essence, what you have when you read the prophets in the Old Testament. You're getting... You're getting the highlights of the prophet's ministry. In the case of Isaiah, he ministered for over 50 years. So we only have a snapshot of what he said. Remember, the majority of the prophet's ministry was oral. He was preaching. He was a preacher and usually gave uh, the message, well, the message that God gave him, he gave over and over and over again in various places. It wasn't like the message we have is the only time he said these things. But in the case of Isaiah, you have the highlights of his ministry, the thrust of his message uh, over the course of over 60 chapters of a ministry that lasted 50 years. So recognize that. It's different than when Paul writes a letter. It's just a concise letter, sends it to Ephesus, sends it to Colossae, sends it to Thessalonica, and the saints read it in one sitting, and then they copy it and send it to others. Um, The prophets, you get the sum total of a whole ministry. And so we have to understand the context a little when we go to read it. What part of his ministry, where in relation to Israel's history does this chapter, how does this relate? We have to do that work, and that's what we've been doing. Chapter 48 serves as a nice kind of reflection back upon where the people of God had come, and also where they were going. Remember, chapter 40 to 47 basically is a preparation for the Israelites being taken captive by the eventual Babylonians. Assyria's dropping, Babylon's rising, and God is preparing them for affliction. They're going to deal with trial. They're going to deal with challenge. And he's telling them this prophecy he's giving right now in these chapters, 48 included, these words will become more important to you in the future when you read them again in Babylon. But these words are timeless to the people of God. We will undergo affliction and trial. Refinement is the way God calls this. We'll undergo this, and so this is for us as well. Chapter 48 is another reminder of something that's a refrain in Scripture of how God will use refinement and ultimately redeem us in why he does it. 
why it's important. And at the start of a new year, I think it's important for us to be focused again on what it is that God has for us and why he does what he does. Now, I will read just verse 3 to verse 11 in this 22-verse chapter. So here as I read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth, and I announced, then suddenly I did them. And they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give another. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Dear Father, as we start a new year on the calendar, please send your spirit to give us a fresh wind of zeal and devotion to Christ. As we read of a lukewarm version of the faith displayed in our spiritual ancestors, please shake us from any sort of spiritual mediocrity. Father, it is a new year. Give us a new passion and commitment to you through Christ and by your Spirit's aid. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could get a little bit of the flavor of what's happening with the people of God by what God says to them in these verses. They are in a state of spiritual lukewarmness at best on the whole. Um, This is why they are heading into exile, as a matter of fact. And when you think about the message that will come, the reason for God's refinement, it's helpful to us in any age. And it's certainly true that, that certain years are more tumultuous than others. And this 2016 has felt to me, uh, maybe because of all the cultural changes that have happened, national changes that are related to that, even personal changes, and maybe many of you relate, uh, it just seems a little bit more tumultuous. Not all bad things, just changes. And changes cause anxiety. And anxiety can make us lose surety sometimes. And we get shaken. And this is why we come to the Word of God on a regular basis. Because this timeless Word really speaks to us. It gives us some moorings. It gives us a foundation again. It gives us a picture of why God does what He does. So while it seems tumultuous to us, it's part of God's sovereign will. And He wants His people to recognize its purpose in their lives. Um, It's for refinement. And ultimately, it will show itself completed in our ultimate redemption. Yes, we're redeemed now in Christ, but there's an ultimate redemption that comes for the people of God. And so it's an important message for us to hear afresh, that God patiently deals with his people, even when we're spiritually insensitive. And that's true for us a lot of times. He patiently refines us and ultimately will redeem us. 
And the reason he does this, and this is important, is to manifest himself in his glory before all mankind. Now that last phrase caught me funny several years ago. Because I had always thought of becoming a Christian as being largely about my being redeemed and what that meant for me and those I loved and people around me. And it's certainly true that this is important. But that starts to make me think maybe self-centered, like the reason God saves is so that we can be saved, and that's kind of the end of it all. That leaves you a little bit shaky when you start to think that God's commitment is to us, and that's what keeps us. It's not really true, and we'll see that again in this passage. Really, the reason God keeps us is because he's sworn an oath. He's made a promise, and ultimately it's between he and his son. We'll see that. God's commitment is to himself, and that is what provides us real assurance. Think of that as we go forward. It'll make more sense. God patiently refines and redeems his people. That's what he's doing to Israel in chapter 48. That's what he's going to do with them throughout their history. It's true personally, too. He refines and redeems his people in order to manifest himself and his glory before all mankind. Now, I want to pause just for a moment and address something because it's kind of relevant today. You hear a lot about Israel in the news based on our nations dealing with Israel and so forth. And I hear Christians say a lot of things about Israel. And uh, I get a lot of questions about it. People ask me, what's our position about Israel, people will say. Well, I am concerned with what the scripture says about Israel. So that's what I just want to outline for you for a moment because another very important applicable question, how is it that a Christian preacher can preach from Isaiah and say it applies to us as Christians. I thought it said Israel here. We just read that. So it's a good question. I need to answer it, at least in brief. There are, it is a longer, more complex answer, but let me just give you a bit of an outline of what, how we should think about this. First of all, there has always ever been really two nations of Israel. There's the nation, ethnic Israel, and then there's spiritual Israel. That's true throughout the Old Testament. In fact, most of what you see, you have the entity of the nation of Israel that has people, law, and land. And, and you think of them as this actual ethnic group. But we see that as God addresses ethnic Israel, he's speaking to those who have ears to hear, those who are spiritually alive. That's spiritual Israel. And we should know, among other things about Scripture, God is concerned with that which is spiritual. And the reason why he called that nation is so that from that nation, he could call his people forth. It's not that uh, he doesn't have a special hand on that nation, because he d- does in the Old Testament for sure. Uh, But the nation still, not everybody who is a member of national Israel is really God's spiritual Israel. Now think about this. Uh, Israel was called out by God, shown great favor, especially when they came out after the time of the Exodus, two million of them, and they're given their own law, they're given land. Now they have an identity in the world. People know who the people of Israel are. But remember what God says to them, and it's a spiritual thing. He, gives, he makes a covenant with them and promises many things to them. And he says, this is my covenant commitment to you. You must do this, 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 and this. And he spells out a lot of things. And people like to say that God's covenant with Israel is unconditional. Now, spiritual Israel, that's true. That's about his election, his choice, what he's going to do. But national Israel, very clearly, he says, you must obey me to maintain status with me. Well, we know that Israel fails in this. National Israel fails in this. I mean, grossly so. But that in itself is part of God's plan to manifest one thing. There is actually one Israelite who kept covenant absolutely perfectly. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the covenant commitments that Israel, the nation, could not keep. 
But Jesus the Israelite kept perfectly, among other things. And so he is the one true recipient of the promises, the conditional promises to national Israel realized in Christ. What does this mean? That means what has always been meant. It's about the spiritual, those who are in Christ, the perfect second Adam and the perfect keeper of all the covenants that Israel was supposed to keep. When we're in Christ, we are God's people. God's people are defined by whether or not they are in Christ. National Israel has a great heritage, and we owe lots to that heritage, and we appreciate it for sure. But they are not God's people. God's people are those who are in Christ. And only. And, and so I do believe Romans 11 speaks to a possible conversion, a mass conversion of ethnic Jews. Praise God. What would that mean? They would have to turn to Christ. I mean, that's the only way they could be God's people, is to trust in Christ. And it's not that I'm just making this up. It's clear in Romans when Paul is speaking, and Paul of all people, I mean, Jew of Jew, he, he says of himself. He says in Romans 9, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, there are two Israels. There's a nation of Israel, and then there's a spiritual Israel, and that's the Israel God is most concerned with. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting any national policy. That's not my, that's not my area. I'm just saying who Israel is. Uh, and Israel are, the Israel of God is a church today. It, it, it's not even the church in the sense that there could be people in this building that we're, I'm calling you the church, and Paul writes to the church, but there are people in the church who are not really saved. That's the reality. There's a spiritual Israel as well as the national one. But Galatians couldn't be clearer. This is how Paul, in really his first epistle to uh, any of the churches, he addresses this issue by saying, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice that salvation has always been by faith. Justification is by faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, Paul writes, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You see, it's always been the purpose of God not to keep it with an ethnic nation, but to blow the doors off of that into all the Gentiles as well. That's been the purpose, to be a blessing to all the nations. And then Paul writes, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the sons and daughters of Abraham, Israel in the spiritual true sense, are those who have faith in Christ, the people of God. So we can read Isaiah, read of the people of God, and draw application for the people of God today. We have a greater blessing, though. We have the finished work of Christ on display in Scripture as well. So we can now look at Isaiah's prophecies, see many of them fulfilled, and then we can also look through the lens of Christ to recognize these, these final redemptive blessings that are still to come. So we get the full, it's like the high-definition version of Isaiah that we get through Christ, the people of God today. Absolutely, reading the Old Testament, the people of God today can draw application. We should recognize its greater purpose is to display what God has done, but there are definite application points that we can make, and that's what we have before us in this display of God's interaction with his people at a time when they were very stiff-necked, when they were obstinate, when they were struggling uh, to obey. Does anybody relate? 
I mean, not just the church, but us as individuals, can we not relate with times in our lives when we were this way? We know what God's word says, and we're struggling to do it. We know what he says, but we get to school, and we got our friends we got to impress. It's tough. We go to the workplace, and we don't want to talk about it now. Or we're in the neighborhood, and we know what God says, but we just conduct ourselves in a way that's disconnected, and we're down about it, depresses us because of our hypocrisy. And we're, we're just struggling to obey and to be zealous for God. Well, this word comes to fire you up again to give you another sense of commitment towards God. When you recognize his patience with you, his grace for you, that will help you you with a resurgence of sorts. That's exactly what his word does for us. It doesn't pour more guilt on us. It reminds us of what he has done for us, and that compels us. That's what we have given to our spiritual ancestors and to us as well. Look at the first nine verses. You have on display God's patience He's patient with those who are often spiritually insensitive, which his people, we, we can be like this. Um, we, we can outwardly look a certain way, but inwardly we're really numb. It says in verse 1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. So he's giving them their, their O church, you know, and he's calling them by their name and their official status. And who came from the waters of Judah? who swear by the name of the Lord. All the outward expression shows they're the people of God. And confess the God of Israel. They say it right. This key phrase, but not in truth or right. You say it outwardly, but inwardly it ain't, it's not true. You're not, it's not true for you. You haven't grabbed hold of this. They were nominal at best. They were mediocre for sure. They had the name, they possessed the pedigree, but they were, identif- and they were identified as religious. They said and did the right things, but it wasn't deep, it wasn't genuine. The relationship with God did not grip them. They weren't spiritually dead, but they were spiritually insensitive, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. Full of talk and posture. God himself upheld them by his promises, Yet they were numb to him. They were not responsive to him. They weren't obeying him. Look at verse 2. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Um, They had this history with God that's clear. He's done all these redemptive works. Yet they're numb spiritually to him. The spiritual malaise is something that God can always see through. We could fake it with people around us, but God knows our hearts. And he always confronts spiritual lukewarmness. Verse 4, these are some picturesque words. Because I know that you are obstinate. I mean, that's a t- I can't stand that word to be said of me. You're obstinate. You won't listen. You won't hear instruction. You refuse. And here it gets better. And your neck is an iron sinew. You know, the muscles in your neck, there are many of them. Imagine if they're an iron sinew. You couldn't turn your neck. And your forehead, brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Uh, He's talking about the announcements of his promises, of his redemption, of who they are. And he predicts things ahead of time and then makes them come to pass. And the reason he does this is here in verse 5. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them. No, no, I'll predict it and I'll prove it before you have a chance to take credit for it. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. God is so patient with his obstinate people that he even does things that removes the possibility of us taking credit. We think that, well, that's kind of mean. No, no, that's such a grace. 
You can never, ever, nobody here could ever think to themselves, I did this, so God gave me grace. And that's a grace. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. Be honest with yourself. Let the Spirit convict you if this is true of you over the last year especially. If you had a neck of iron sinew. What a picturesque way. Um, Stiff-necked is figuratively used in both testaments. The word means stubborn. It means not to be led. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia gives a little explanation about this phrase as it would have been understood by the original audience. The derivation of the idea was entirely familiar to the Jews, whom with the ox was the most useful and common domestic animal. It took the place of a tractor and a combine, all the power equipment, kind of big, huge machinery that farmers can use today. It was especially used for such agricultural purposes as harrowing and plowing the earth. I mean, how important would an ox be? Very. The plow was usually drawn by two oxen. As the plowman required but one hand to guide the plow, he carried with the other an ox goad. It was a light pole shod with an iron spike. With this, he would prick the oxen upon the hind legs to increase their speed, and upon the neck to turn or to keep a straight course when deviating. If an ox was hard to control or stubborn, it was hard of neck. It was stiff-necked. Hence, the figure was used in the scriptures to express the stubborn, untractable spirit of people not responsive to the guiding of their God. To top it off in verse 4, not only does it say we have the people of God in this case or can have these uh, necks of iron sinew, verse 4 says they have foreheads of brass. You can picture whacking them on the head and it doesn't matter. It does not matter. This is how we can be, brothers and sisters. We can be this way. It's easy to look at Israel and say, boy, look at them, those stiff-necked people. But this is true for us all in moments of our lives. And so this is an important word for us. Yet God, he shows us patience. Look what he's going to tell them next. This, is, this gives us excitement for what's coming in Isaiah. Verse 6 says, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things, that you have not known. So what he's about to reveal is new revelation. Um, the prophets gave that revelation for the first time, and it was new, and it's powerful. This buildup for what's coming next in his prophecies. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. I, I love Isaiah, and what I've studied so far, and I hope you have felt the power of these chapters too, but we have not seen anything yet when we start getting in to these later chapters of the book of Isaiah. Nothing like it in all the scriptures. So good, and so thorough, and so defined that yes, there's repeats of the revelation, but not in the detail we get in Isaiah. And so he's prepping them. So his response to the stiff-necked people of God who are numb to him spiritually, numb and mediocre, his response is, I'm about to unleash revelation on you. I'm about to give you a picture of something bigger than anything you've ever seen before. What a God. I mean, in our stiff-neckedness, he gives us more grace. He gives us more of his word. He gives us revelation. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. No, the stuff you're going to hear from me, he's saying, you will not be able to say, I know that, I've seen that. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. 
For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. The patience of God with the people of God who are stiff-necked. I see that you will be stiff-necked, that you will be treacherous, that you will struggle, so I will give you my word, and I will open up to you where you've never seen it before. That's, what my, that's how God deals patiently with his often spiritually insensitive people. Why would he do this? Why would God do this for us? Why would he, instead of punishing us, give us more grace, give us more of his revelation? Verse 9 answers the question, the first half of the verse. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Now, back to what I said at the beginning. Do you understand why it's so important that we rightly understand why God saves? He does not save for you. What? He saves for himself. And that's why you can be sure. God's commitment to himself is why you can be assured. Let that sink in. Because it didn't sink in for me the first few years I thought about it. Only now do I realize that's the only assurance I could have. Because God has committed to me, what would you feel like about that? Because you know how uncommitted you are to him. That would be very shaky. But God is committed to God, and that's why I'm assured. Because he says by his own word, and he unites me to Christ with his word and his action, and so therefore I can be assured, because God will not break his promise to himself. And that's why he says right here, rather than wipe you out, people of God, I will give you a fresh offering of my word and my revelation like you've never seen before. Of course, this is tied to this time. We have this completed now. But this is what he says. Now he sends a spirit in a fresh way so we understand his existing word. But here to the people of God, he says, I'll give you my word. And here's the reason why I do this. For my name's sake. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. God's promises are sure and he will keep them. And he patiently deals with his often spiritually insensitive people. Our eternal souls are certainly safe with God. We see that. But he's working a final redemption out for us too as he refines us through affliction, through difficulty, through challenge. He will not let them go. He loves them too much to leave them untouched. He will work his discipline in their lives. This is true of the people of God, but he never ever unleashes his anger upon them. He defers his anger. His anger goes to another. His anger goes upon Christ on the cross. And we know this from the full message of Scripture. And we know that Jesus provides that mediator for us. Our eternal souls are safe, but far be it from God to leave us in our stiff-necked, ineffective state. Instead, he works on us, and he does this by refining and redeeming ultimately. Look at the second part of verse 9. It begins this next thought. In verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. Now look what comes next. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. That's his anger. I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. So God has a clear purpose for his gracious. His refinement, therefore, is gracious. He refines so we don't get cut off. He redeems ultimately and gives us a picture of that redemption so that we can be steadfast. So his grace is poured out on us so that the right praise is offered, and it's to him. Why does he do this? For his name's sake, he defers his anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. You know, this is not at all 
limited to this passage. In fact, you see throughout Scripture that God purposes to save so that he will be glorified and so that he will receive the credit that only he deserves. And he will not share, as we see soon, any glory with anyone else. Now, I totally get when you first hear these kinds of things, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, at first you think to yourself, wow, that seems kind of self-centered of God. Exactly. Because he's God. See, that's the thing. And when we realize that, we find our proper place, and our life takes a whole other purpose. Now, I don't mean to say that there aren't great benefits because God keeps his word to himself. There's tremendous benefits. It's the assurance we feel. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We are kept by him. He will not forsake us. All of these things are true, and we feel them. We experience them. But they are benefits. They are secondary offshoots of the great thing God is doing in manifesting his name. And when we find our our natural flow with glorifying God, it really changes the dimensions of our life and the perspectives we have and how we look at everything. I mean, it really is life-altering when you recognize that your main purpose is to glorify God. And when you do that, you're going to enjoy him because you'll finally understand your purpose. What better could you hear at the beginning of a new year than the message from God's word once again? In fact, I love what Paul says to just kind of cement this point. He just, Isaiah said, for the sake of my praise, I restrain my anger. Instead, he pours out his grace. Paul says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, who's Christ. Why does he adopt us? Why is he to the praise of his glorious grace? God is not shy about the purpose. People just don't like to hear it in their self-centered state. And this is part of the problem for the people of God in the Old Testament. It's part of our problem too. The more self-centered we get, the farther away we get from giving the credit to the one who's The credit is due, and then we become more self-sufficient, and then we become more open to whatever else there is out there because it's about self and comfort. And you're walking further and further away from God until you're like Israel was here, and God has to refine them and bring affliction so that they remember again who it is is God alone. Notice the language of refinement in verse 10 to 13. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Uh, Remember, these words are meant for them to reflect upon when they are in Babylon. So it's possible at the moment they're hearing them, they're not seeing the connection. Uh, For us, these many years later, we can put together uh, those times of affliction, those times of God's discipline. Um, These are refinements God's making for us. Why does he do it? Verse 11, for my own sake, to be clear, twice in the Hebrew, for my own sake, It's like God knows we want to take credit, or we want to say it's us, or we want to say it's about us. No, your refinement is for his own sake. He does it for his own sake. For how should my name be profaned? I put my name upon you. I've tied myself by covenant with you. I will not let you rob from the glory that is due me alone. And this is what he says exactly, verse 11, the last part. My glory I will not give to another. One of the important attending truths to the gospel of God's grace 
is that it is all of God. Therefore, all the credit, all the glory goes to him. He is not willing. He will not share it with you. If he does, he is not God and he cannot save you. It's important what Isaiah is displaying here. And it's important for us. It's important for Israel when they hear this to gather this afresh, especially when they're in Babylon in exile. And it's important for us right now, whatever affliction you find yourself, whatever trouble you have, the affliction, the thing he's putting you through is for his name's sake, to refine you, to make you more dependent upon him, to give glory to him. And when you do this, this is when you will find actual joy. That's the beauty of this. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, verse 12. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. And you see God vying for his own glory here? He's saying, listen, I am the first. I am the last. Do you also notice that these are the exact words that Jesus Christ uses in Revelation? I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. You know, the deed of Jesus is not just uh, based on the comments he makes uh, explicitly saying that I am the Father, I'm one. There are enough there. It's the whole, it's the pervasive message of who Christ is. As he uses the same words attributed to God the Father in the Old Testament. He uses them for himself. He is God the Son. And he will share his glory with no one. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Verse 13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. Remember how God refers back to his being the creator so many times to remind the Israelites of where salvation could be found? When I call to them, they stand forth together. Now, last year I gave you a memory verse. This year, your memory verse is 17. I'll remind you of this again in the next couple of weeks. But verse 17 also speaks to this refinement and then final redemption, and then we'll see it in the final point. But here's the verse for you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Now, teaches you to profit is not a health and wealth sermon. The profit here has to do with godliness, has to do with growth in God's grace. But this is your verse for 2017. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. So he has just poured out his message of understanding about their stiff neckedness. He is also talking to them about his refinement, his gracious care for them, and what he is doing for them. And now he's going to say, I do these things, and these will teach you how you should act. So how to obey will come from this understanding. We, his people, were given a response to God's refinement and his redemption. We can respond to his grace as he lays out for us now in verse 14 down to the end. Verse 14, assemble all you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. So the particular affliction for the Israelites will be Babylon. But God reminds them that Babylon is a pawn or a tool he uses to refine his people. We've heard this message before with Assyria. It's true of anything that comes into the believer's life that brings discomfort and hardship and affliction. It's 
God has his sovereign hand on this, and he'll use this for his refinement purpose. And his purpose is to prosper his people for his namesake. Verse 16, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret, from the time it came to be I have been there. And then a a personal word from the prophet himself, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. In verse 17, our memory verse, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, remember his redemption, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Now, this is so wonderfully placed because we have already been assured God knows that we are often obstinate. God knows we can be rebellious, yet he gives us his refining and redeeming grace. So he hasn't cut us off because of it. Quite the opposite. He's shown us grace to people who do not deserve it, yet we deserve his wrath. He gives us grace. Okay, what, happen, what should happen then? We should obey him as, in light of this. I mean, the right response to God's gracious refinement is obedience. That's what he calls us to do. If you fail in obedience, guess what? He won't cut you off, but he'll keep bringing discipline because he loves you. You won't lose your adoption, but you'll be miserable God's grace is designed to compel us to obey him. The person who is worried when the preacher says God's grace means when you mess up, God still loves you, the person who's worried about that has not understood the gospel. But the person who says, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, they don't get it either. When you get grace, then obedience becomes the only response. Yes, when you mess up, he doesn't, throw you off because we go back to grace. But grace keeps compelling us to obey God's word. And this is what he promises. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Of course, he means not only just the particulars, but in the whole of their lives. Verse 18. You can almost sense the exasperation here through the prophet's words. Oh, and think about where they are. I mean, here they are ready to go into exile. They've had a long you know, maybe you've, if you've ever had a, if you've, you've been a child yourself or your parents told for the, over and over and over again the same message, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, then you did it, and it doesn't work well, and your parents say like this, verse 18, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. If you would just listen to what I'd said to you, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. If we obey God's commandments, they are a blessing. He refines and redeems so that we can obey. When we obey, we experience God's peace. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Verse 19, your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains, their names would have never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Now, I want to pause there because there's something Abrahamic here that we need to address. He's saying something hard to the nation of Israel that is realized in the time of Christ and relates back to what I said at the beginning. The fact is the nation of Israel as a whole failed in their covenant commitments and they failed to manifest in the terms that they probably always thought. We would be such a great nation, there'd be we wouldn't be relegated to this little tiny spot in the Middle East. You can't say that there are more of them than there are grains of sand in the sea because the ultimate fulfillment isn't in them. We discover it's through the one Israelite who accomplished all these things, and through him it becomes true. The promises of Israel are realized in Christ, and there will be more 
called to Christ and there are grains of sand in the sea. So it's not that it's not realized, but it's not realized to these people here. And that's part of what's devastating about what could have been had they obeyed. It says in verse 20, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. You know the grace of God. You've seen his hand. So leave Babylon and Chaldea, who are aligned together. Leave there and declare it. Tell the message. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God's forecasting this coming captivity. And there will be a time through the refinement that happens in captivity. The people of God will realize God is God. He is the only one who deserves glory. He has saved them. This affliction is for their refinement. And when you come to the end of it, go tell everybody. Declare with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the earth, to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Brothers and sisters, as we begin a new year, when you finally understand God's grace, it's then that you can be free. And freedom doesn't mean license. It means freedom to now obey God. Freedom to fail. Finally, understanding God's grace will give us the freedom to obey God and enjoy his peace. Because you realize it's not what you do that makes God love you more. You didn't do anything to get yourself saved. You don't do anything to keep yourself saved. That's all of God's grace. So that allows us to live our life in all its flaws, striving after obedience, relying upon God's grace. And by the power of God's spirit, we can see victories in our life that we would not see otherwise. In fact, I'm confident that if I just preached a a message of do this and do that and be more holy, that I would get results for a little while, but then you would fall hard and harder than you did the first time. Because that's what it does. But the grace of God, I know some people get nervous. Boy, the pastor preached about grace. Listen, I'm positive. I'm positive that if I preach the grace of God to you as displayed by the gospel, you will obey more. That's what grace does. It teaches our heart to fear. I want to say something about this last verse because it's profound. Well, verse 21. Can't skip verse 21. Here's a picture of exactly what I've just said. And it's really the ultimate picture for those original listeners. It doesn't have the same impact on us unless I explain it. For the people of Isaiah's time, the glory days of Israel would have been when they were delivered by God's hand from Egypt, you know, up through the time of King David, right? That'd be the glory time period, they would say. And in particular, the way God delivered them from from Egypt was so obviously a massive show of his sovereign grace. Nobody could deny it. And so Isaiah hearkens them back to that picture, verse 21. He's talking about the ultimate redemption of his servant Jacob, which we should proclaim Verse 21, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from a rock, from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out of it. Have you thought about this? I mean, yes, it's amazing what God does in redeeming them from Egypt, the Red Sea. I mean, nobody could say, wow, we worked this out. We, we sneaked away from the Egyptians. We fooled them, didn't we? I mean, nobody could say that. I mean, obviously, they get the other side, and now what do they do? They got nothing, only what they can carry on their backs, which isn't a lot. So now what would they do? Well, God takes them through the desert and he provides for them food. Lots of it. And he provides for them water. Just, he didn't bring up to a, He could have brought them to a big body of water and said, here. But someone could have said, well, look, we just got lucky. No, he splits a rock and his water come out of it. 
Okay, nobody could say they did this. Now, the final verse of the passage is profound, as I, as I meant to meant to, to say and said earlier. The people were being stiff-necked, and God was calling them back to devotion by manifesting his grace. The spiritually sensitive among them, the true Israel, if you would, will, would hear and respond. But those who are not spiritually alive, they would get mad, and they would continue in their unrest. Now, people who are not believers will act, they'll say, oh, I'm fine, I'm at peace. Well, why do you get so mad then when I bring this up? They're not at rest. They're at rest as long as you don't bring up the message of Christ. Only because they're not, it is not right in front. They're, they're completely restless. And this is what verse 22 conveys. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The statement is meant to challenge the people of God in the midst of their being stiff-necked and spiritually insensitive. Because they are, they're living in terrible anxiety. So the statement, verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The statement is meant, it has particular relevance for the people to not be like the people in the world who struggle. You know, it's interesting on social media over the course of the last several months, especially in 2016, being the death of so many known, so many celebrities. No more people have died in 2016 than any other year. But there are a lot of famous people have died, and that draws death to our attention. And you'll see well-meaning people say R.I.P. all the time about folks. I use it too, but I admit I use it kind of as a tool. Because I know someone will ask me the question, well, what do you mean? And then I can explain um, that the only peace anybody can have is in is trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ. But I don't know um, the fate of every uh, person who dies. I don't know these celebrities. I know What I know, it doesn't look good, but I admit I don't know at all. So I still could say R.I.P. It's a hope that they're resting in peace. And I can explain it. It opens up a lot of doors for discussion. But I think a lot of people meet it in a real fluffy way. Like, I don't know what else to say right now because somebody we all know and have some affinity towards because of something we connect with. R.I.P., R.I.P., rest in peace, rest in peace, rest in peace. Christians, just understand what the Scripture says very clearly here. There is no peace. There is no peace for the wicked. And we're all wicked unless we're in Christ. Isaiah 48, it's about God's purpose in refining and redeeming his people. It's a great message to start a new year. Why does God refine and redeem? Keep this in mind as you go throughout your year. God patiently, very patiently, because we need, he need, we, we're people who need patience. God patiently refines and redeems his people in order to manifest himself and his glory before all mankind. I am always impressed with people who have spiritual vigor and zeal for Christ. I read about such people. I want to be like them, even though I find myself uh, not much like a lot of them. I think of those evangelists in the various phases of the history of the church. And I went to an undergraduate school named after a guy who was an evangelist, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was not a precise theologian. That's putting it mildly. But having said that, he was undeniably on fire for Christ. And he wanted to go anywhere he knew the church was dead, or there were, there were people who would be willing to listen, he preached the gospel to them. I love that fervency that he had. And I wish that we had more of that. And he went to Spurgeon's church. Now, Spurgeon, I relate with a lot more. I mean, I get along more with his ideas than Moody's. But Moody asked Spurgeon in 1873, when he came over to England, could I headquarter here? Do you mind if I preach some uh, evangelistic messages around town? And Spurgeon, he was kind of a tight reform guy like I am, and he basically said, 
okay, because he could tell he was zealous for Christ. He knew he wasn't very precise, but this guy would go into places even Spurgeon couldn't get into. So he preached at Spurgeon's church once, and Spurgeon, you know, kind of cringed a little bit, but ultimately, man, I like this guy's zeal. It's what he says in his own, I'm not making it up, it's what he says about Moody afterwards. It's pretty incredible. And he really appreciates this kind of fervency that, that Moody has. This, he's fired up. He's not mediocre. He's sold out. He's committed. He wants other people to know. He wants to do what the passage says. Go declare to everyone that God has redeemed Jacob. And so he goes around London, he goes around Scotland, part of Ireland, and he preaches, and he preaches. And very few people come to these things at first. More and more people come, and not a whole lot of people make professions like you would think of in the normal campaigns or the revivalistic campaigns that were happening back in the United States. But people did come to Christ. A lot of them ended up in Spurgeon's church, and Spurgeon was amazed by Moody's simplicity but his zeal. The reason why I bring this up, we may not all be trained theologians or have all the exact precise words to say, but if you've been saved, if you've been touched by the grace of God, then you can respond like this passage says. And you could go and tell others. You could proclaim it with your life. You can be exuberant about it. It's something Moody used to say all the time that really gripped me when I was a student at, at Moody Bible Institute. He said, and it was quoted often, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And I know that makes me, well, God doesn't need me. No, he doesn't. But what he was saying is, if we would just be sold out to God, if we would just be committed to God, what would that do? What would it look like if our church was that way? Now, we already have the basis and the bedrock for grace. We understand it's all of God. But what if that truth of the gospel so gripped us that we just lost any inhibition about sharing with others? I mean, that can't be bad, right? I mean, it may not be real Presbyterian, but it would be really good, wouldn't it? That we wouldn't just be so fired up about the gospel of grace that we just go home and, you know, eat a good lunch and feel great about it. That we'd actually want to tell somebody about it. Let's not be lukewarm. Let's not be stiff-necked. Let's hear what God has done and is doing and then respond to it by how we obey him and by what we declare about him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message to our spiritual ancestors. We all know how quickly spiritual numbness can set in. We're all too familiar with a sort of casual faith or mediocre commitment or, or this, you know, we keep it, our light under the bushel. Yet once again, we've seen in your word the great work of refinement and redemption that you have done for us. Please give us zeal. In response to your grace, give us devotion. Move us to obedience. Obedience is an expression of our love and appreciation for your great grace to us. Thank you for your word and its power, O Lord. Please grow us greatly in this year to come. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.